Hello and welcome back to Mendeq. I'm your host for today's episode, Sophia Aydid. Today we have joining us Hawamira, Ifrah Udgun, and Zainab Habon. This episode will be focusing on an incredible film from Djibouti, uh, Dalin Yaro, Youth, that we're all really excited to talk about. It's the first full-length feature film directed by a Djiboutian woman, Lula Ali Ismail, who's based here in Canada. Um, and we'll get to that in, uh, conversation a little bit later. But first, for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, Mendeq is a podcast by a collective of young Somali academics from diverse fields who write about the Somali territories and the Somali diaspora. Our perspectives are informed, critical, and unapologetically Somali. Our podcast features members of our collective, along with a wide variety of guests that speak on issues relating to Somalis across the globe. So let's go ahead and get to some of our segments, beginning with the Adan Studies Roundup. For a lot of you who might be tuning in for the first time, you might be curious what Adan Studies is. It's a hashtag that snowballed into a global movement. In March 2015, it was launched as a way for Somalis to speak to larger issues of power, authority, and knowledge production about the Somali territories and how Somalis continue to be marginalized in academic and policy studies, especially those that concern them and the Horn of Africa more broadly. Mandep does a roundup of our favorite Adan Studies moments during each podcast, and we feature our winners on our Hall of Fame. This episode will be featuring the Somai Research Network Listserv, which is hosted by the University of Helsinki and more recently moved over to the Migration Institute of Finland. So this list has been around for a number of years. It's one of the largest Somai studies listservs that we're aware of and populated by mostly Adan researchers and practitioners in the Somai studies field. It's also a hot mess of paternalism, racism, and white arrogance. And the last few weeks, we've witnessed a number of things, including our old friend Marcus Hona, who wrote a message to the list in Broken Somai, urging us, presumably the Somai people who can read and understand what he's saying, to learn about ethical research practices and read Linda Smith's book, Decolonizing Methodologies, you know, a very famous text that, of course, we're all familiar with, but he just discovered. Um, and just this week, Charles Geschecker, who's a well-respected historian in Somai history and played a role in institutionalizing Somai studies in the late 1970s, personally attacked and demeaned me repeatedly in a discussion over this listserv on COVID-19, an illness that he denies the existence of because I had criticized him and pointed out his history in denying the HIV AIDS pandemic. So I believe we've talked about this listserv before in our older podcasts, and the fact is that nothing has changed over the years. And this listserv remains an incredible space of violence for Somali scholars, particularly Somali female scholars. So congratulations, Somali Research Network. You guys have earned your spot in the Advanced Studies Hall of Shame. Um, so I'd love to hear from all of you guys. I mean, you all know and have been following what's going on. I posted a thread on Twitter about this. Um, so let's let's talk. Um, for me, if I, um, it seemed like just so personal and it didn't need to be so personal, right? Um, the way that he was attacking you was like, how dare you? How dare you challenge me? And um, when you speak about like the just a 
paternalistic nature of it, that's basically what I got out of it. Like, how dare you as a woman? How dare you as a as a black woman? How dare you as a Somali woman to challenge me? And I, I was very disgusted. I read all of like the uh, the entire thread that you posted. And every um, instance of him writing back to you is just reeking of just condescending paternalistic attitude of how dare you? You're, you're not supposed to challenge me. It's supposed to bow down to me. I, I wanted to say that actually this is just indicative of a culture thinking and believing that Africans cannot be in charge of their own knowledge production, that um, it's, you know, reeking of, you know, colonial mentality and everywhere in different spaces, especially academic spaces, uh, white men particularly are constantly trying to dominate the narratives uh, and be the gatekeepers of, you know, Somali history, but also, you know, wider African history. We've been coming across this type of behavior for a very long time. And as somebody who was, you know, a community activist for a long time in England, particularly, I've been trying to challenge all of that, you know, from, you know, uh, written press, you know, the way they portray Somalis, but Africans in general has been a problem. So uh, once one of us gets into that space and question even their presence, um, it's 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 not acceptable to them so they get very offended so it's a whole mix of you know white privilege uh sexist uh, sexism um and also entitlement and that's what you faced Safia. and i'm really really proud of you know the way you have you know launched this you know uh adan studies was you hawa all the articles you've written previously the talks that you've made i followed all of that very closely so I love the fact that you got uh, a whole crew of Somali scholars, scholars to sign um, the open letter that you've written last time, I remember, just to show. But then it reminded me of Toni Morrison's um, quote where she says, we're constantly uh, being told we don't have culture, we don't have scholars, we don't have people who know uh, what they're talking about. And then we spend years proving that we do. So sometimes, you know, it's it's just exhausted, but it has to be done. And for that, I thank you and everyone who was involved in the dance studies, including Hawa. Thank you, Zainab. I mean, it's it's interesting that he kept repeating, you know, in 55 years, I've never had a Somali talk to me this way. I found that to be such a revealing comment. Um, in terms of kind of what you both correctly pointed out, the paternalism and condescension, of all of this, you know, this idea that we are subjects of study, you know, to these white academics, but we were never supposed to speak. And thank you for bringing up the Toni Morrison quote. I mean, one of those, I think it was even the same interview where she talks about the function of racism being to exhaust you. That's, that's part of it, the emotional labor and demands on us to constantly prove that we exist, prove that we're smart, prove that we're capable. Um, itself takes a toll. So, I mean, Adan studies and, you know, really what we do here at Mendel, part of that has always been to um, kind of highlight burden on us as Somali scholars, particularly most of us are young Somali women, um, but that unique burden on us and how that itself is a function of institutional racism in academia. Marcus, welcome back. It's been a while since 
you know, anybody has talked our about him. Friend. Our old friend. So I'm, you know, he continues to make himself relevant for Adon studies, Adon study purposes. Um, and then, yeah, I was really shocked. I think kudos, Sophia, for, for uh, making it public. Because I, I believe that lots of these things stay hidden. And the damage done to the scholars who identify and bring these things forward are horrendous, right? And I think you alluded to this too in one of your comments, which is if this is a person who eventually peer reviews an article that you write or has any kind of say or sway in something that you might want access to later, there's a real cost. Um, there's a real cost to scholarship. And for all of us too, when we don't have the people that we need saying the things that we need them to say, uh, and folks like this acting as the gatekeepers to that kind of knowledge production. I think it's it's a shame. I also, I mean, talk about digging a trench, like, you know, one message, two messages. I was like, Charles, are we gonna stop? Are you gonna continue? Does, does, it, does it stop? Does it you know, you know what I thought of, how it, like, have you seen that meme with like the cat, like removing somebody's hands from a keyboard, just saying that's enough, yes. <laughs> like a paw. <laughs> I just thought Charles, you know, just you know, put the you laptop have any down. Out here? Yeah, somebody tell <laughs> where us are your stop. people? <laughs> right, but you know what? He was kicked off the listserv, thankfully. Um, and I do think, despite you know the intense racism of Somali studies, I do think most people saw him as you know just this unhinged crank. Um, but the sad part is many people agree with him in thought, right? This idea that Somais are not capable, this idea of even abusing me personally, because I mean, I've certainly made a number of enemies, you know, for how I had talked about Somai studies back in 2015, how we all addressed it. Um, so this is, I mean, definitely part of a larger problem, something that we'll continue to address here on Menter. And just as scholars, researchers, activists, community members, it's something that we're constantly going to have to address and confront. Um, every episode, we'll be asking our guests to celebrate Somai excellence. Some of our older listeners may remember this segment, much like Adan studies, but this is something that, of course, is not limited to individuals. Somai excellence is about celebrating the achievements of Somais around the world, on the continent, and in the diaspora. So, Sainab and Afra, who have joined us kindly this week, um, who have you chosen to celebrate? So I have chosen to celebrate um, all the Somali creatives online that are um, making content and given informational content, especially about COVID-19. I want to give a shout out to them. Uh, to be a creative in the Somali community has uh, is a difficult thing and has been a difficult thing. Just the way that creativity is viewed sometimes as something not worth people's time. Um, in creating it, but people do consume it. As when it comes to music and arts and literature, people do consume it a lot. It's just that the creatives aren't really given a lot of credit for their work, nor do they really gain any um, monetary compensation for their work a lot of times. So shout out to the Somali creatives that are continuing to create, um, despite you know the lack of, um, one, appreciation, and two, just giving us informational content. Uh, one person that I really like that I always follow who inspires me as an artist, as a performing artist, and as a potential filmmaker is Abdesalam Ato. 
Um, he's been a creative since uh, forever, probably. And I follow him on Twitter and he's always creating videos, informational content, um, humorous content and continuing to be a creative. And he inspires and teaches young creatives. So I just want to give a shout out to him. Yeah, no, Akhi Salav is really interesting. I, I, I recently found out he was behind that wonderful YouTube account, Bartamaha. You guys remember yeah. with the archives and everything? Um, so I didn't know that. But I know Sainab also has someone or something to also share with us for so my excellence. Yes, I wanted to shout out to you, Safiya. <laughs> you know, um, when, when I realized, you know, that uh, other Somali, young Somali people are pursuing their undergraduate, their graduate degrees and their PhDs, it really gives me so much joy. So we, I become, you know, personally invested in their success. So it was good to see that journey that you went through doing your PhD. And I was so happy to hear that you were, you know, now graduating. Um, so I'm really proud of that. I think it's very important for us. It's part of actually the, the agenda that Mandek has to produce, to have body of work that has a Somali lens, you know, um, being published and we need to quote each other. That's what Adam people do, you know? So I need, you know, that kind of knowledge being produced by young Somali people. And, you know, Ifrah, shout out to you for your master's. Uh, um, Shukri is about also to get her degree, a friend of mine who's, you know, brilliant, awesome. So it really just makes me proud to see young Somali women, um, you know, following their aspirations and, you know, getting their PhDs and masters. So kudos to us, we'll keep going. I definitely want to second that and I cannot, you know, not mention how excited I was and still am to see, uh, you know, Sophia and her PhD regalia. I've been following Sophia for a while on social media and I was just always amazed at, you know, just her strength encouraged in addressing some really difficult things, um, sometimes on her own. So just kudos to you, Sophia. That was, that is, you are a powerful, phenomenal woman, you know? And <laughs> please share the pictures, you know? So, I will, we are excited I will. To celebrate you, literally, like <laughs> celebrate you. And I said oh. also the other day on Twitter, it was like, I was at home drinking my shah, reading your Woman in Somalia. And I was just like, this is just so perfect. You know, as a Somali woman reading scholarship on Somalis, from a Somali woman, it's just phenomenal. It was just perfect. Thank you so much, guys. I mean, let's also, I mean, like you both said, you know, shout out to Somali women who are doing their thing. Shout out to the class of 2020 who, unfortunately, I mean, were robbed of their opportunity to, you know, go to commencement, to go to their graduation ceremonies. I know, especially for us as a community, many of us are first-generation students, first-generation masters and PhD students as well. Um, and graduations mean so much to our families. Uh, so, I mean, shout out to all of us who would have been graduating the class of COVID-19. Um, so congratulations, everyone. Shout out. Absolutely. Yay! Congrats! <laughs> uh, so let's get right into our discussion today. Dalin Yero. A, such a stunning work of art, a love letter to so my girlhoods and some girlhood in so many ways. Um, I know we all had a ton of feelings watching it. <laughs> I know Ifrat Theta, like we've all just been on, live on Facebook, just engaging pretty much with 
every opportunity we've gotten to discuss this on Twitter and you know whatever other social media. Um, I personally watched it twice when it went up. Um, so let's start maybe with asking everyone what their impressions were of the film and kind of what this film meant to you um, as Somali women. Uh, this movie um, meant a lot to me as a Somali woman. It was one directed by a Somali woman, right? So um, that and it really inspired me. And as an inspiring filmmaker and as somebody who's also in front of the camera, trying to be behind the camera and also write Somali stories, it meant the world to me. The moment I discovered I made it my personal mission to get this film to everybody, as many people as I knew or could find on the internet. It was on my Snapchat. It was on my Instagram. It was on my Twitter. It was on my Facebook. I would literally post the URL link on Facebook as a status. And lo and behold, you would have somebody on the comments saying, where is the link? You know what I would do? Normally, I would be so annoyed that they just completely avoided, ignored the fact that I posted the link there. But I was, I was like, I'm doing, I'm doing the Lord's work. Okay, here's the link. Here's the link. Here's the link. I was sharing it everywhere because it meant so much to me that there's a Somali story written by a Somali woman. Um, they were speaking Somali, you know, even though there was a lot of French too. And um, I was just really excited about that. And then it was centering Somali girlhood, where a lot of times we hear Nalin Yara, you, you, a male or young men come to mind. Or because generally speaking, when we talk about Nalinyera, we're talking um, just the way that our society is based on is male-centered, it's patriarchal. So it was centering girls and that just, you know, and then the kind of topics that the movie hit in terms of friendships, in terms of sexuality, in terms of, you know, coming of age and making these really hard decisions when you're leaving high school, all of that, a parent-child relationship, these are the things that I'm, as a person, most passionate about and as an artist most passionate about as well so this film meant a lot to me I had to find Lulu I found her um I talked to the online festival festival um creators or curators and we did this live and I just wanted to make sure that everybody was able to see this film I could talk about it more, but I'll give other people opportunity. Yeah, Sadam, I mean, you yes. are from Djibouti. I, I know. know you saw yourself in the film in so many ways. So tell us a little bit about how, how that felt for you to see, I mean, your culture, your society, your girls so well represented. It, it was so emotional, I have to say. Um, so beautiful. The first time I just spent, you know, my time... Uh, having that big smile on my face and then getting excited every time I recognize one part of the city. Um, the lycée, you know, the scenes in um, as they waited for their exams, all of that took me back home, seriously. It was the best thing that came out of our territories for a very long time. And I, as you know, we really, you know, always hoping that we would have cinema that portrays, you know, in a very um, balanced representative way coming out of, you know, um, Somali territories. So this kind of, you know, was beautiful in that sense. And yes, I love the fact, you know, that it was centered around girls, Dalinyaro uh, coming of age. Um, it showed many, uh, you know, issues as well in Djibouti, but in a subtle way without necessarily getting po too political about it, because I guess that wasn't maybe the objective. So it was, it was a very exciting time. I mean, it was streamlined for 15, you know, 15,000 times. I was, we were shocked to find out, 
you know, that's what was happening. Somalis kind of, you know, claimed ownership of this movie and went crazy on Twitter. And um, we broke the internet, basically. We did that day, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the, the movies were being advertised in, you know, Cinewax, you know, um, uh, Daniero was uh, watched or streamlined 29 times more. So obviously, there were many themes in the movie that so many people could identify with or relate to. And that was beautiful and beautifully done. Uh, I, I, I think it was also a very realistic representation of what goes on in, you know, with young people. Everything revolves around education, around, you know, getting that baccalaureate, um, etc. So it was it was brilliant. It was beautiful. This streaming, um, Zainab, I wanted to just piggyback on that. Of so, like, so much streaming and so many people watching it for me told me that there was like that hunger uh, for authentic stories, one, and for authentic stories from like Somali territories and Somali stories. And that really inspires me as an artist because I, I feel that people really want to see themselves on the screen and want to be represented. And I, I was very proud of us as Somalis. I mean, one thing that we are amazing at is being cheerleaders for Somali representation. I mean, whether it's an athlete or a model or an actress, whatever it is, you know, Somalis, you know that you're going to have folks in your corner. But seeing, I mean, a serious film, you know, so beautiful, so wonderful. I mean, I think it touched a lot of us in a number of ways. I mean, for me, one of the big things was to see Somai girlhood kind of outside of the stereotypes. Like usually when we see Somai women represented, it's, you know, as victims, right? It's women who are escaping from patriarchal culture. It's, you know, the Ayan Hirsis talking about, you know, Gudmin, that they've been circumcised. Like that's pretty much, those are the tropes that define, I think, Somai women um, in the sort of popular imagination. But this was, it was just everyday life, right? It was just so normal. It was you know, just schoolgirls who are studying for their exams, who are dreaming about what they're going to do after high school. It was literally, I mean, this kind of, they called it a universal coming of age story. And it was so relatable and it didn't resort to any of those spectacular images. Even, you know, the miscarriage at the beginning of the film was done in a very subtle kind of way to indicate, I mean, yes, that sexuality is really important here, that, um, girls are going through these things but it wasn't done in a really spectacular way we didn't see her you know attacked by her father afterwards or how a hollywood movie would kind of frame things right um so that's what i really appreciated how subtle it was and how it didn't resort to those tropes western tropes about so my so my women i loved it um i watched it twice it just felt so affirming and normal like it fit within a context that i felt familiar with but it was so beautifully shot and it gave us this inside look into what the experience is for young somali women in a way that was really unique. I was paying a lot of attention to the number of Batis in the film. Yes, yes. So yes, many beautiful simple. colors. I was like, yes, this is what I do. I come home, I change into my Bati. This is exactly my experience too. It was just, yeah, I thought it was stunning. And the ending blew my mind where she asks her dad where he's been. Like this whole story about her looking for him, looking for him, looking for him, and then knowing where he is, but asking him where he's been. It was such a beautiful way to end the film yeah. as well. Can we talk about that? I mean, 
one thing yes. that I really noticed about this film is how, I mean, yes, it does center women, it centers girls, but it also, I think, decenters maleness in such interesting ways. I mean, one thing that I noticed is most of the men are not actually named, right? We we see Yusuf, kind of this older predatory man who's dating um, Deco. Um, we see, like, they all have siblings who aren't mentioned. You know, Deca has brothers that we don't really see. The friends that are kind of part of their circle. One of them I remember is Zekaria. But the other one, we didn't know his name. Like, yep. there were just so many, I mean, not even indicating, I mean, who these men are. Because they were irrelevant, right? The yep. father doesn't even speak. He's silent. It's the agency is in Deca to speak to him which I thought was so incredible and powerful. I mean, he was just looking at her. So let's talk a little bit about that too. How did you guys feel about that? Yeah. You know, even the, uh, was it Deqa? Deqa's um, mom, when she was talking about her dad, you know, she was trying to tell her daughter, okay, it may, it may not be what you are expecting or what you're thinking, but still she didn't prevent her from, you know, looking for him and i haven't heard any kind of derogatory terms being used against you know the dad sometimes that's you know what happens and then we have um the mom is the the at the heart of it we only see the dad at the end when he's you know in the uh in the bus and she's you know exchanging a kiss with 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 a boy so they are there but they are on the peripheries you know and that's very very interesting but there was one i believe also other you know male character the 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 storyteller that they was talking to who was giving her a bit of a understanding about you know french colonialism for example and how somali soldiers were part of you know the war efforts etc so they still have a role but is you know in the background and I like that because usually all rides, as you know, are male-dominated. The the writing, the stories, it's very much you know patriarchal, male-dominated. So of course uh, we had a woman producer and a woman writer. So I would expect that. But this was, I believe, intentional, and I really appreciate that about you know Lula. And you know, speaking of um, Ruaida being male-dominated, um, Ruaida always have been male-dominated to the point where males would actually play females because it was immodest for women to act and perform in Ruaida. And sometime along the way that, you know, thankfully changed, but then we reverted back to it being becoming immodest again, right? So um, I do like the fact for me personally, because I really like to study the human condition and study interpersonal relationships, I really did enjoy that dynamic of just the raw and honest nature of the relationship between Deca and her father. Um, that it wasn't um, ID, it wasn't necessarily good. It wasn't uh, painted to be, oh, it's just your father, Abba Hawaii, you know. Uh, like always be, you know, this good child that just uh, deals with everything that your parents present to you, whether it affects you mentally, emotionally or not. And the way that the filmmaker portrayed that, that the father was indeed doing something wrong and that the daughter had, in fact, a right to question him was very powerful because I feel like in our community, we're not really a lot of times, um, you know, encouraged to confront, I guess, our parents or to even demand a certain treatment from them. 
I mean, one of the interesting things I thought about how women are so foregrounded in this, it's actually quite accurate. If you look at life, you know, back home in the Horn, women do have their own spaces. You know, the relationships between mothers and daughters are far more stronger. Kind of men are peripheral to use. I mean, one of the words that someone else mentioned, I think Zainab, I mean, men are peripheral in many ways to kind of this female sociality, if we want to call it that. So it was interesting to see that also kind of reproduced in the film itself, that men are marginalized or marginal in the film because they are marginal in the lives of women back home in a lot of ways. I don't know if that's accurate for Djibouti, Zainab, you can speak to that. But certainly, I think in kind of Somaliland, as I've experienced, and in <laughs> Eastern Ethiopia, that's very much how women are. Men kind of leave in the morning after they have their lahoh, you know, and you'll see them again after sunset, right? <laughs> you just yeah. don't deal with them during the day. It's pretty accurate, actually. And I know, you know, we, we, our cultures are very patriarchal. However, women still have a very um, strong agency in, you know, Somali cultures, regardless of where it is. And I think Djibouti is the same. Women do everything in a way. <laughs> yes, your main work as well, and they go to work, but in the background, in, you know, organizing things, in, you know, having uh, the community to move around certain causes. Yes, it's women led. And we have our own, you know, spaces as well, um, as you said, uh, Safia. So I do agree, it is um, a, an accurate reflection of how society is in general. It's just that maybe sometimes the last word is given to the men in a way. And, um, you know, like my mom would say, you know, I'm just making 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 your dad think, you know, he, he, he runs the show, but he doesn't. <laughs> And I was just like, yes, right. <laughs> I'm giving him the ideas, mom, but I don't get credit for it, she will say, you know. So, yeah, it we, we have a strong presence. Um, and I think it's also very interesting, the kind of relationship that, you know, we had with our fathers as well. Um, it, I, I feel like in, you know, in my experience, but also in many of my, you know, um, uh, sisters' experiences, we were very close to our dads as well. So for me, dad was the one, you know, who would encourage me and say, be number one of your class. And there's, you know, no difference between a girl and a boy when it comes to education. You are just as smart, if if not smarter. So when I had a dad like that, you know, who would say that, the whole neighborhood sometimes would come and celebrate with you when you pass your exams, and that was wonderful. The fathers were aware and come around, you know, our neighbors and say, well done. And that to me was really, really uh, very important as I grew up in, in, in Djibouti. Everybody was involved in that educational, you know, progress of the children. But of course, if you didn't do so well, everybody knew as well. So it wasn't it wasn't easy. And I just remembered somebody said to me, was it like that? Did, you, did they announce the results on radio? <laughs> and I have to say, I, I can't remember on the radio, but definitely we were all gathered uh, in the Lycee and we had somebody from the administration holding a, you know, loudspeaker announcing yes people who passed and also their grades so it was real it was you know something that you shared with everyone you're there noon time in Djibouti in the heat 
waiting to hear whether you actually did well or not. It was gruesome, I would say, but that was what really we, scary. Yeah, it was. Everybody could share that. And we used to physically get sick, honestly, because we didn't want to, to be left behind. We didn't want to fail. We didn't want to disappoint our parents. Everybody was so involved. And then they were like, oh, the exams are being announced today. So we all gathered <clears throat> in the court, you know, of, of the lycée and we waited for our names. And if you came first, you knew you had the good grace, <laughs> the motion très bien, you know what I mean? So it was a very uh, yeah, gruesome kind of, you know, experience, but it encouraged us to, you know, to do well. And then you can see the conditions, you know, in which you are studying if you're if you're from affluent families or if you're a poorer family some people were revising you know without electricity uh with candlelight and others had becherelle and all kinds of you know uh, books to help them prepare for the exams so there was a you know imbalance in that sense and inequalities were there and we could see it in the characters but at the same time young people were trying to breach that so those who had the space and you know big homes and all the books would invite those of us who didn't have all of that to come over to their homes you know and revise together and we did that a lot and there was so a scene like that in the movie right where um the rich girl went to her friend's house to mm -hmm. take yeah. um something to her so that they could have like light again and did she take a generator i think it was a generator if i can remember right. Yeah, it was a generator because certain areas, when we had power cuts, we obviously didn't have, you know, generators. So we waited until it came back. And sometimes it was away for 15 hours and uh, it was hard. But, you know, people coped, you know, uh, one way or the other. But yeah, that was that was interesting. She was aware her friend didn't have electricity. So she asked her dad to bring the generator that they could afford so that they could have electricity. And that to me is a little way of saying, even though the situation and circumstances are different, as human beings, we're trying to still kind of, you know, help one another. And Djibouti is really yeah. well known for that. All our neighbors, regardless of where our background or ethnicity or even clans, Somali clans, we used to go around and check up on each other. Just the culture of like different Somali territories as well, it kind of, you know, uh, you sometimes, you know, don't mean to, but inadvertently, like, do kind of like a comparison game, you know? So it made me think about, like, the culture in Djibouti maybe, you know, being different um, from, like, other parts of, um, you know, Somali territories. Yeah, it's it's a different colonial experience as well, you know? I, I hear the comparison that people make, and as a person who grew up there and as also somebody who's really, like, believes in Somali Nimo. I don't like to do that, but yes. And for me, it's just the product of the environment and the different people who came to live in Djibouti over the years. The, you know, French, you know, um, colonial kind of legacy as well. We had many people, even from the rest of Africa, who lived in, in, in Djibouti. I don't know if you saw this ad that came up recently where they're trying to, you know, raise awareness about um, the COVID and there's a scene where this bus driver is allowing people in and spraying them with something and saying, okay, you're safe now, you're clean, you're wearing a mask and whatever. And every culture in there, most of the, you know, the main cultures were represented. 
there were characters there who spoke in Arabic and people understood, and then another person who spoke in Afari and people understood. And there was this uh, gentleman um, from West Africa wearing, you know, West African clothing there as well. And everybody was on the bus. So it was so interesting to see, even in an advert, you know, they tried to represent the diversity of Djibouti. And that was, you know, very interesting. Of course, there were other issues with the advert. People were taking off their masks. And it, it defeats the purpose, people. <laughs> no. Because <laughs> when, when they wanted to speak, they would take it off. And I was like, oh, gosh, you're already contaminated. Oh, no. But yeah, it, so we grew up like that. We grew up together in a way, um, close proximity. And yes, you know, there's still challenges. There's still, you know, uh, inequalities. Uh, who has the power and whatever, but yeah, as as society, it's the people. It's that diversity helped, you know, breaking down those barriers in a way, and decreasing, you know, um, tension around uh, tribalistic kind of feelings. When you grow up with somebody, it's very hard to discriminate against them. You see what I mean? So maybe that's what people pick up. I, you know, I felt though that in Dalin Yaro, a lot of that diversity was lacking. I think it, it was very much a class story, right? So we yeah. saw a lot of the class-based inequalities and kind of this implicit political critique. The politics wasn't there, but I found that, I mean, the power outage at the end was, I, I, I would have taken that as a critique of the Djiboutian government. Because, yeah. I mean, rich or poor, everyone's power went out. Yes, the rich people could manage it because they have access to generators. Poor people were turning on their lanterns. Mm. But at the end of the day, they are all affected by, you know, the government unable to kind yeah. of have these in, this infrastructure, right? Um, so politics was sort of bubbling under the surface. Class is always political, of course, but ethnicity was kind of the big question mark in the film. And there were little things. I mean, I, I just submitted a um, a review of the film for Africa as a country. And one of the things that I noticed is, I mean, to someone who doesn't speak Somali, you're missing some of the, because of the lack of subtitles, right? Subtitles are, are pretty limiting. You're missing some things in the background. So what I observed, although all the characters were supposed to be Somali, with Hippo's character, the wealthy girl, I mean, her father speaks like three words and they're all Arabic. He says, you know, marhaba, uh, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, he he says things like, I forget what it was. I think, yes, salam, mafi. You know, he he says little kind of things to signal that he's actually not Somali. Um, and then, of course, when she kind of has this scuffle with the schoolgirls um, at the school, um, you know, one girl in the background says, like little things are there to indicate that, you know, very subtly that he was actually not full Somali. Um, but that isn't actually presented well in the film. Um, and we found out, of course, later, as Ifra knows, you know, that the actresses, one of them is Afar, one of them is Somali, one of them is Arab Somali, you know, her, her father is Arab. So the diversity is there in casting, but not in representation in the actual film. So I'm wondering what you guys thought of that. I, I have to agree with you. I, I think even though we can understand it because we, we know, it wasn't made very obvious in that sense. I don't think, you know, the character was meant to be representing an Arab person or 
an Afro person. That yes was missing. And I remember when Lul was asked about that, she mentioned the fact that she was Somali and therefore she just, you know, uh, represented what she understands, what she knows. But I, I have to say, maybe a critique for me, in you know, um, of, of Djibouti in general is that Somalis are overpowering other people. I know that, you know, all the Afro people I know personally speak fluent Somali. You wouldn't know until they tell you that they're actually Afar, you know? Um, the Arabs, very fluent in Somali. But when it comes to the Somali people, we don't learn other people's, you know, uh, languages. Very few of us, unless we are in certain areas where, you know, let's say the Afro population is prominent. Um, we don't learn Afar. We don't really become really fully fluent in Somali. So yes, uh, some people would say, well, because we are the majority. I don't really know if we are the majority, to be honest. And when Djibouti so-called was discovered or the French were, you know, arrived there, um, the Afro were the only people there. Um, and in certain areas like Tajura and places that are a little bit more fertile and less arid. Yes, in a way, we, our culture, Somali language, you know, has, um, is the main thing that, you know, everybody kind of, you know, congregates around. But even those who don't speak Somali, we have the French as well. So it's a very peculiar, you know, country in a way you could say, but I understand what you mean. It wasn't made very obvious in the, in the film. I have to agree with your critique. That's probably my only criticism about the movie, but it still was good, so. I mean, to, as someone who is from kind of, I mean, one family member from, one parent from kind of Somalia itself, one parent from Ethiopia, like Djibouti, in kind of Somali history has always been a place that's marginalized, I think, by the history of Somalia, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in a lot of ways, this is true for Somalis of Eastern Ethiopia, Somalis of Northeastern Kenya, kind of the story of the Somali Republic has kind of dominated our narrative of kind of who Somalis are and Somali history itself. And so Djibouti, I was so excited about this film coming from Djibouti, you know, representing Djibouti, produced by a Djiboutian woman. But at the same time, you sort of see that marginalization kind of in mm. kind of this pan-Somali thing. You know, we all related to it, although we're not from Djibouti. But the question is also, to what extent can some of the other people of Djibouti, the so-called minorities, and I completely agree with you, Zainab, I mean, of course, a number we don't know. I mean, it's very possible that when you add up everyone else together, you know, you're looking at more than 50%. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the question then becomes, is this Somali Djibouti that's being represented or is this truly a Djiboutian story? Or is it once again kind of Somali yeah. dominating narratives? Um, so, I mean, that's that's something to think about. Of course, we, we critique with love, as we've all I, talked about before, and this is an incredible <laughs> mm -hmm. movie, but, you know, we always push each other to, to do better sometimes. So, as a Somali person from Djibouti, I always hear other Somalis who would say, oh, well, Djibouti was Somali, you know, was Somali. And, you know, they're part of the five, you know, uh, points of the stars, etc. So, I say, do you guys know there are other ethnic groups who live with us in Djibouti? Other ethnic groups who are mm -hmm. actually very much part of the fabric of the country. They are surprised 
They was like, what do you mean? And I'm just like, yes, let me break it down for you. Yes, there are ethnic group who are not Somali, who are Djiboutians who live in Djibouti. Okay, we can't erase people. So there are also Arabs, yes, who became Djiboutian by nationality and maybe have adopted some of the Somali culture as well. However, they have their culture as well. They've been maybe there for 150 years from Yemen and places like that. But, you know, they're still not Somali in that sense. So, yeah, I have to always clarify that people don't really realize. I thought about that, too. Um, looking at like the film um, in terms of like the representation, the fact that it's a Djiboutian film. Right. And you guys talk about all of the different ethnicities um, that, you know, may be represented, may not be represented in actuality, but in the casting. I thought about what it means to be Djiboutian. And then, of course, I'm from you know Somalia. Right. So I'm thinking to myself, too what it means to be uh, not Somali, like ethnically, but Somali in terms of nationality. Because when we're talking about Djiboutian, we're talking about nationality, not ethnicity. If, let's say, Somalia wasn't named like after Somalis, then other people in Somalia that are have different ethnicities, would there wouldn't be like that conflict between um, being, let's say, um, Barawani. Was that this major um, conflict not too long ago where... Um, they weren't allowed to record um, a on a radio station in their native tongue. And mm -hmm. people were saying that, you know, they're not Somali, even though they are Somali. So the idea or the what I heard was basically if Somalia was not named after Somalis, then there wouldn't be that conflict. And Djiboutians are able to band under that um, umbrella name of Djibouti and then be different ethnicities. Yeah. And I mean, also, of course, Somali nationalism was very much premised on this idea that Somalia is an ethnically Somali state, that these people adjacent to Somalia's borders and, you know, northeastern Kenya and eastern Ethiopia in Djibouti, you know, are ethnically Somalis, therefore must be part of this ethnically Somali state. That's what Somali wave was always about. So kind of this discourse of Somali nationality, Somali ethnicity, it's all conflated through that rhetoric. And it's something that I think we're still dealing with and trying to unpack. And it's even more complicated because you see increasingly, I mean, Djibouti were always, I mean, since 77, they've said they're Djiboutians. But, yep. you know, for Somais of, you know, what was called Somai Gilded, for Somais of the former NFD, and now with Somaliland, you know, declaring independence from Somalia, the question then becomes, you know, we need to really separate this idea of citizenship from Somai Nemo. Um, so that's something I think we're all still grappling with. Um, but a huge thank you to our guests, Zainab, yeah. uh, Ifrah, how of course of the Mantek Collective for a terrific discussion. Um, just for our listeners to know, for future podcasts, please email us at mandekcollective at gmail.com or tag us on Twitter. Our account is at underscore mandek. Um, you can send us our uh, you can send us questions. You can send us topic ideas. You can send us feedback um, that way. So thank you all for listening and thank you to our guests for joining us for this episode. Thank you for having us.